You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon. I'm Doc Sloan, and I've never had a bad day in my life. That's the way we start this program, and I also uh, believe it's a philosophy that I, it's important to live my life by, and everybody else for that matter. Uh, welcome to the show. It's our second podcast, and um, I have my daughter Stacy with me in the uh, Real Radio announcer booth, along with my wife of 52 years, Sharon. Hi. Hi. Um, so, Stacy, you had uh, a question for me to start off with today? So last week we were talking about uh, the gift that you got for your college graduation because I had asked you at what point were your eyes opened up to this idea of abundance and um, success and positive mindset. And you had mentioned that after you graduated from Eastern, you had a graduation party and someone gave you a magazine subscription. And I've heard you say before, and we didn't get to talk about it last week, that that magazine subscription was really what seems like was the the instrumental piece that took you to this place. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, this came a long way before I came up with the concept or the the, the truth of um, I'd never had a bad day in my life. And I told that story last week about Eddie Brassi. In my restaurant, who was my manager, talking to the gentleman at the at the counter, and they didn't realize they knew they knew each other, and then they kind of one of them mentioned Carl Taylor, and then at, in unison they both said, "I've never had a bad day in my life," and of course that just resonated with me, and I've been saying it ever since. But to get back to your point and your question, um, the, the magazine Success Unlimited it's it's known as to it's morphed into or grown into Success Magazine today. Uh, but they don't call it Success Unlimited anymore. It was actually a little periodical, almost like a Reader's Digest or a Guidepost magazine, if, if, if the, if the, if the uh, audience out there knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure you've heard of Reader's Digest. It's not that thick. It's not that, it wasn't that professionally done. It was very nice. It was, still, it was done very nicely, but it wasn't Reader's Digest in terms of the format. And um, the uh, – I lost my place here. Um, oh, so – when I got the magazine, it made me feel like um, – it didn't make me feel of anything. I, it was very interesting to me. Uh, I, the feelings came later in terms of what I learned and what I saw. Uh, I always knew there was more in life, but I didn't know how to get there. And as I mentioned last week, again, uh, Brian Tracy said there's five reasons why people never achieve financial independence. And that's not what it's all about only, but – Everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to have enough money to pay for their their, their needs, their wants, their desires. And um, certainly I did. I was no exception. So as I started to read the magazine every month, I uh, and I mentioned again that the, the gift was given to me by my cheapest friend uh, from uh, in my he wasn't he didn't go to college with me. We actually just grew up together. And uh, but he was a friend, and he, but he he gave me this magazine subscription as my college graduation gift, which just seemed to be like, what's this about? And of course, what it was about was success, unlimited, and concepts of success, and concept of it was expanding your horizons, and being able to think beyond your circumstances. Um, I met a gentleman one time named Ken Gobb. I'm going to swerve. You'll 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 hear me mention Ken Gobb every once in a while. G A U B. He's a, an evangelist from Yakima, Washington. And I'm sure they probably had Ken write an article or two in there. I know they did uh, a number of uh, notable speakers. And uh, 
he um, was telling him one time he was met a lady and she said to him, he said to her, well, how are you? And she said, well, not bad under the circumstances. And he said, well, what are you doing under there? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, boy, is that ever powerful. And Ken's a very positive guy. I uh, told a really interesting story one time about he got on an airplane going to Puerto Rico with his wife. And uh, it was Eastern Airlines, actually. Eastern was back in, in business in those days, in the, back in the 60s. And Richard Nixon was president. And he had an estate uh, at P, uh, Key Biscayne down in Florida. It was, the, it was his presidential retreat, so to speak, as much as, like, say, the Bushes had their their ranch in Texas or uh, there's Camp David and or perhaps uh, Mar-a-Lago with President Trump. And um, so his, his escape was uh, – uh, Key Biscayne. And uh, so Ken got on this airplane, Eastern Airlines. They, they were probably somewhere in the back, it sounded like, the, from the story. And um, when he got in, back in those days, a lot of you folks can't relate to this, but you used to be able to walk up to a ticket counter and buy a ticket, just just buy it cash. You didn't have to, there was no internet. There was no computers. Well, they might have some rudimentary computers, but nothing like we have today. And uh, and you couldn't do today what was done back then, and uh, so. But anyway, he he was on the airplane. What they would do is they'd they, when they would overbook a flight, people would literally walk on with their tickets, and then they, let's say if there was 150 seats, they might have sold 170 tickets, and so uh, th- then they just turn these people away, and then they give them vouchers, and they'd always done the same thing: free flights and free meals, things like that. So when Ken was sitting on this airplane next to his wife, he said it was a big gentleman, big heavy gentleman. And he said he was giving the stewardess a really, really hard time. And um, finally, Ken said, I, I'd had enough of it. I couldn't take it anymore. And he said, so I stood up and I offered him my seat. And uh, this, the guy didn't even thank me. He just mm-hmm. sat down next to my wife. And he said, uh, the stewardess looked at me. And she said, well, sir, that was a really nice thing that you just did there. And uh, you just have to deplane right now. We'll put you on the next flight to Puerto Rico and you can join your wife and um, we'll pay for the flight. And uh, he said, oh, no, 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 I I solved your problem. He said, now you have to solve my problem. And she says, what do you mean? He said, well, he says, I gave up my seat. He said, "Uh, now you got to find me a seat. She says, sir, you evidently didn't pay attention or listen to me closely enough, but there's no other seats on this airplane. This airplane is full. That gentleman, you gave that gentleman your seat. There are no other seats in this airplane. And Ken said, oh, no. He said, there's one more seat. And she said, where would that be? And he said, it's right up there in the cockpit. It's called a jump seat. He said, it sits between two pilots. You just fold it down. He said, I've sat in them before. He said, you go on up and tell the captain that Ken Gubb's on board, and I have permission to sit up there. And so she went up there and told the captain, and she came back, and she said, okay, you're all set. And he said, I turned to my wife, and he said, I said, honey, I'm not leaving. I'm going up front. I'm going to fly with the pilots, and uh, I'll see you up front when you get off the airplane when we get in Puerto Rico. He said, so we got up front, and... He said the captain was busy and the co-pilot was busy and there was a flight engineer there. And he said, um, I just buckled myself in, sat down. They were all too busy to pay attention to me. He said, so they, they just acknowledged I was there and I sat there and I watched them getting everything all set and all the radios set. And then we, the guy downstairs there with the little ketchup bottles gave us the taxi rules and he, he, he focused to, you know, gave us the signals how to taxi and so forth. We, and he said, this is a whole different experience sitting up front where you see everything when you're seeing the, the runway environment out there in front of you and all the all the white and the yellow lines. And he said, and you're lining up behind all the other airplanes. And they, they put us on runway nine, he said, which took us off right over the Atlantic Ocean. 
And he said, we, we, we rotated up and took off. And he said, and then I, he banked to the right and headed. We were, I'm sorry, I told you about this party. They were pulling out of Miami, Florida, by the way. And he said, uh, they turned to the right. And he says, and then right below us, he said, the, the captain pointed to me, uh, or the co-pilot, rather, on the right-hand side. And he said, look down there. That's B.B. Rebozo's estate. And he's uh, friends with uh, uh, Richard Nixon. And that's Key Biscayne down there where Richard Nixon comes when he's not here in the White House. When he's, it's his southern White House. He said, I saw the coral reefs, and it was a beautiful, just a beautiful sight, the, the blue ocean, sandy beaches, the keys. And he said, uh, then we climbed up to altitude, 17,000 feet. And he said he leveled off, and then he got himself all kind of squared away, and he nodded to the co-pilot and that he had it under control. And he looked, turned around to me, and he said, okay, hi. He said, I'm Captain Sloan. He said, and what did you say your name was? He said, Ken Gobb. He said, and who gave you permission to sit up here? He says, I did. <laughs> he said, you did? He says, you can't do that? And Ken said, well, the altimeter says 17,000 feet. He says, I did it. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy Ken was. And you can look him up on YouTube. He's a very interesting guy to follow and see some of his stories. And uh, those kind of people and those kind of stories and those kind of events really shaped my life as a young boy, a young man coming up. And so I already had my, my little window cleaning company going when I was in, in college to pay for my flying lessons. And um, and by the way, ladies, you might find that story incredible, but it's true because back in those days, and you can see that with the story Catch you, Catch Me If You Can with uh, um, Le- Le- Leonard uh, DiCaprio. Oh, Leonardo. Leonardo DiCaprio. When, about that Robert Allenthorpe, that, that um, – faked his way into a lot of airlines right. and flew TWA, TWA with a uniform on, but he never flew on TWA ever. He, he always was with – no, I'm sorry, Pan Am, not, not TWA. And he said he, – but he, he was a, a, a flight engineer and then a, a first officer on Pan Am with his suit, his, his, his uniform, but never – didn't even know how to fly. And he never went aboard Pan Am because he figured that if he had a Pan Am uniform and was on a Pan Am airplane, that somebody would say to him, well, do you know Captain Smith or do you know Captain Jones? And – he wouldn't have to say that. He would just – the other guys in the other airlines, there would be no cross-pollination where they would know. And that, that was – those things were very, very easy – doable. I mean, they might not have mm-hmm. been easy to do, but they definitely were doable. And uh, to, to be able to you know, tell a, a stewardess to go up and tell the captain you had permission to sit on board, nobody had the thought process <laughs> right. with, that they have today. But what inspired me about stories like that was that, that you'd, you'd be able to think beyond your circumstances, that you didn't have to live under your circumstances. And those things really excited my imagination and, and my my dreams and my goals and my hopes. And Success Unlimited did that for me. Mm-hmm. I remember you said that after all of these years, you had saved a number of those bets. You saved all of them up until a certain point and that you would give a lot to be able to have those back, that over oh, these absolutely. years you've lost those magazines or, you know, moving from place to place and that you would love to have those back. You know, I looked at – as of last week after we had our first podcast, I went on my phone and Googled um, you can buy um, portions, sets of Success Unlimited magazines. And I and I, as I saw the covers, I remembered literally some of the covers. And there was one gentleman. He was called the Six, the six Billion Dollar Man. And he owned a uh, – that was back when Lee Majors had a TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man. Mm-hmm. And this fellow was – this gentleman, I forget his name, uh, was featured that month. And I saw – he looked very much like um, uh, 
Lee majors in a way. And back in those days in the 70s, everybody was wearing leisure suits with big collars and bell-bottom <laughs> pants and things like that. Of course, he was dressed like that in the, on the cover of the Success Unlimited magazine. But he owned a, a uh, some kind of a mine. Uh, I don't. It wasn't a gold mine or coal mine, anything like that. It was more like iron ore or some kind of a, a, a property of uh, uh, some kind of a stone that was important uh, to industry. And he was in the mining business. And I remember that story when I saw him. And yes, I, I looked up. I can buy the 1973 or 76 editions. They're they're actually bound in a cover, mm. and they're not that expensive. I think they're like 250 bucks. Okay. But I'd love to have every article that was ever written by uh, – if you ever want to get me something for my lifetime Christmas gift, you'd start mm-hmm. to get me those because, <laughs> because <laughs> so that would be – And you know, um, that reminds me of something else that Charlie Tremendous Jones told one time, uh, a great motivational speaker, uh, just a, a great insurance uh, – high, high producer in the insurance world but also author and, and, and motivational speaker, Charlie Tremendous Jones. He may still be alive today. When I got Success Magazine about five years ago, we started resubscribing to it uh, at the office. One of the first episodes I ever got from Success Magazine, and it's very much now like a magazine, like a regular size, like uh, Time Magazine, that type of format in terms of size. It wasn't a small little periodical anymore. And um, who was on the cover but Charlie Tremendous Jones? And he was he was very uh, very impact he impacted my life a great deal. Charlie Tremendous Jones did, and he said this one night. I was at a, a meeting at a dinner, and I, he was live, and I was sitting there in the in the audience. And he said, "Gentlemen," he said, ten years from tonight, you're going to be the same person you are sitting here right now, with the exception of two things." And I remember sitting up in my chair a little a little straighter and looking at him across a really big dining room. I was in the back, about two hundred fifty men there. It was at Stouffer's Northland Inn. It's no longer there in, in Southfield. And uh, he said, 10 years from tonight, you're going to be the same person you are sitting here right now with the exception of two things. And I remember I was paying attention, but I paid more attention now. And I thought, what's he going to say? And he said, the people you meet and associate with in the books you read. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that. And I made probably some kind of a conscious decision or a subconscious decision that night, that made so much sense to me. It was a, it was actually a, a turning point in my life, a moment, an epiphany, an aha moment, something like that. There's certain things you're always going to remember in your life, like the day you got married, the day that you were born, Stacy, the day that your brother was born, the day your sister was born, uh, things like that. You'll never forget. And I don't, I, I don't, I still remember that, like a, like a color movie. Um, hearing him say that, and I must have made a subconscious decision to hang around with winners and read good stuff mm-hmm. and fill my mind with positive, empowering things. And um, you remember our dear friend Thomas Rapoli, a Christian mm-hmm. psychologist. They were dear friends of ours. And we went on a lot of ski trips together, so forth, up to uh, Shanty Creek. And Tom used to say, and again, being a psychologist, I remember one of his sayings, it was a favorite of mine, which was, be careful who you let run through your mind with their muddy feet. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Does that answer your question, though? Well, what you yeah, mean? it does. Because I, I remember you have talked about these magazines before, and that they mm-hmm. had really kind of been um, a turning point for you, and that led to so many other things. And 
that you had been disappointed that you've somehow over the years, you know, you think something doesn't matter anymore. You throw it oh, away. Sure. Why carry this stuff around? Right. We're moving again. Why carry this to the next place? And I've remembered that you said that you wish that you could have every one of those back because you I spent really so much time reading those and they were so instrumental. And at the time that you received it, it was like, oh, great. What I, you know, what kind of gift is this? What is yeah. this for? And you had no idea that out of all the things that you got, that was what the best gift right. that anybody could have given you. And I hate to put a monetary value on it because there's more to it. To, there's more metrics to measure that by mm-hmm. than just monetary. But the guy literally handed me a million dollars. Right. A $3.97 subscription. He handed me a million dollars. And along with that, he handed me an attitude, a, 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 an opportunity, a path to learn how to grow and learn and go and and uh, believe and receive and achieve and share. And uh, it was really a life-changing experience. And because I let those things slip away from my life, not the concepts but the actual physical materials, the magazines themselves, I really need to get on a quest to get all those back. And I think if I can't get them all back, I can get a lot of them back. Mm-hmm. It would be great to have them back in, in my library. And I like Jim Rohn. Speaking of the word library, uh, Jim Rohn is a fella that everybody in America ought to know who he is. He was Jim Rohn died about two or three years ago. He was a national treasure. He was right up there with Zig Ziglar and Ralph Waitley and uh, Earl Nightingale and uh, Og Mandino and W. Clement Stone and Napoleon Hill. And uh, to name some contemporaries that are alive today would be Les Brown. And um, he, um, he had a um, – what was I going to say about – I'm losing my place. I, I mentioned so many names. Who was the first person I mentioned? Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn. Thank you. And when you talked about that library, I want to get myself back on track. And when you mentioned the word library, or I did, um, Jim Rohn said that he, he met a guy that he really admired. His name was Shof, Mr. Shof. He never mentions his first name, Earl. Maybe it might have been Earl. And he said, if I met this guy and he said, man, if I could just be like this guy, I could, I could achieve so many things. He said, he was so impressive to me. And he said, then I ended up, I ended up going to work for the guy. And he said, that was his, he was my mentor for six years. And he said, and then he died. And he said, it was just devastating to me. But what I learned in those six years started me on a path that just paid huge dividends in every area of my life. He said, before I met Mr. Schof, he said, uh, he said, I was behind in my promises. I was behind in my bills. I was behind in uh, my goals. And he said, I'll never forget the turning point in my life. He said, one day I was home and uh, I was all, all alone. He said, I had no money. And he said, I was alone. He had a family, but they weren't, nobody was home. He said, a little girl came to the door and knocked on my door. And she was selling Girl Scout cookies. And he said, I opened the door. And he said, and man, he said, she was prepared. He said, she had the uniform on. She had the sales pitch. She had the product. And he said, she did everything right. And he said, one problem. He said, I didn't have any money. He said, so he said, I did the next best thing. He said, I lied to her. I said, you know, honey, I love your Girl Scout cookies. I love the peanut butter ones the best. He said, but, you know, I've got a, in the kitchen, we've got a cupboard full of them. He says, and I, I can't even finish those. He said, so I'd like to buy your Girl Scout cookies, but he says, but I've already got some, but thanks for stopping by. He says, I closed the door. He says, you can't get any lower than lying to a Girl Scout. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you know, you just can't get any lower than that. And he said, I I closed the door. He says, and when I closed the door, I said to myself, I cannot go on living like this. Mm -hmm. 
is I had to change. And he said, I used to park my car around the corner. He said, because the repo people would come to our house looking for it because I was behind the, in the payments. Same thing happened to Zig Ziglar, by the way. It's amazing. Mark Cuban, too. Is that right? Not about his car, but he would have creditors call him every day. Mr. Cuban, you're so far behind. This is the bank. This is the credit card. We're going to turn off your lights. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Really something, isn't it? Yeah. And so Jim said, I I cannot live like this any longer. And he he made a decision. He turned his life around. He made a decision. He met Mr. Schof, and he said, "Uh, that man turned my life around. And he said, so Mr. Schof said to me, so what books do you have in your library? And Jim said, uh, I don't have a library. He said, well, he said, you need to have a library. He says, you know, he said, you know, when you go to the department store, he said, uh, uh, and this is not the same way again, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking 50 years ago now. He said, well, you know, when you go to the department store, he said, they keep all the expensive things behind the counters. They still do with diamonds and Rolexes and things like that. And he said, and then he said, in some of the department stores, he said, they would keep things of great value up on the high shelves. He said, and I, Mr. Schoff said to me, do you know how you get up there, Jim, on those high shelves? He said, no, Mr. Schoff, how do you do that? He said, you climb up on the books you read. Hmm. Isn't that powerful? And I love that. And it gets back to the library. He says, so I, didn't have a, I didn't have a library. And he said, so he said, I, I had the next best thing. He said, I had a Bible. He said, and that had 66 books. He said, so I said, my library oh. started with 66 books. He said, but that literally, I started to fill up my library. And that same thing happened to me when I mentioned the word library. I started to fill up my library with books that really were meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you saw that as a child growing up in our home. Uh, Mom did too. And now when I have birthdays, Christmas, um, holidays, whatever it might be the occasion when I get gifts, many, many times – we you, all get you books. <laughs> you, all, you, all, you guys all get me books, and I love them. I, uh, I, I absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. There's um, a, a lot of articles about how important it is to to read things and to take in information, and they say that on average, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, um, and a few other people um, whose names I can't remember spend at least four to five hours every day wow. reading, taking in new information, not necessarily books, but – Articles, studies, mm-hmm. research, and that's extraordinary. If you think the average person takes in one book a year, right? Um, that, that's a lot of time that people are spending to to I, develop themselves and to do something with that information. I remember somebody saying, I don't know who it was, like a Tony Robbins or or um, somebody like that. They said uh, if you just took and back again, it couldn't have been Tony Robbins because he talked about the cassette tapes, and Tony would have been talking about podcasts or. He's another one who went bankrupt. Yes, he did. Yeah, mm-hmm. lost everything. And uh, but somebody said that if you just took the time you commute just mm-hmm. to work every day and coming back, he said and started to put. Um, well, they used the word t- cassette tapes, which many people don't know what those are. But <laughs> anyway, put cassette tapes or CDs in your car and listening to your radio. Uh, you could learn a new language. You could learn a, a, a new vocation. You could you could just expand your horizons mentally, intellectually, so many ways. Uh, I know the gentleman uh, that's oh, what's his name? Nito Kobin. Nito Kobin. He's the he's the uh, he's Greek, I believe, and he's uh, on the used to be on the uh, the board of Great Harvest Bread, but he's been on the board of many corporations, and he. Uh, came to America and he didn't speak the language, and he became a taxi cab driver of, of all things. I mean, <laughs> so mm-hmm. he became a taxi cab driver. And when he would be waiting for a fare, he would take he would open up a dictionary, and he'd take a three by five card, 
and he would and he said the average person knows uh, five thousand words in, in uh, generally five thousand to seven thousand five hundred words. And he said, so uh, I knew very few. I, I didn't know very many words, but I knew enough to, to get around. And he said, but I decided I really wanted to grow and learn and grow and go. And he said, so I got a dictionary. And he said, I, I uh, learned uh, words by taking – opening up the dictionary. I started with, with the letter A. And he said, and I started to memorize words that started with A. And I would write them down when they would be of interest to me. And I'd write those words down on the three-by-five card. I'd learn how to spell them that way. I'd learn how to write them down. So I learned how to, how to read and write better. And he said, then I learned how to pronounce them. And then I learned how, what they stood for, what their, their definition was. And he said, by the end of one year, he said, I'd learned 30,000 words. He said, I'd learned four times the number of words that people knew in America. And he said, I was an immigrant. Hmm. And uh, so he never stopped learning. Yeah. Um when you had the window cleaning business, how long were you doing that before you got the idea to start what eventually became your business? Well, the business I own now is called North Star Mat Company. It's a sponsor of this program mm-hmm. and uh, a little plug for the business there. <laughs> so, uh, But the um, we, we rent floor mats. It's a textile rental company, but we don't do garments. Uh, we don't do uniforms, or but we do do shop towels, things like that, and mats. Our focus is floor mats. And um, I didn't know anything about that business, but I knew how to do window cleaning. And as I mentioned, I started my window cleaning business to, to pay for my flying lessons um, back in 1967. And uh, I was doing fine. And I met a guy one day. I was walking across. I was at Eastern Michigan University. And I was walking across the campus. And it was a gentleman from a company called Economy Linen. And he was a, he was a route driver. And he had a bag of linen over his shoulder. I presume that they were sheets and pillowcases for the dormitories. And um, so I looked at him and we said hello and I said, where are you going with those sheets and pillowcases? And he looked at me and he said the typical thing that people used to say back in the 60s, if you were stuck your nose in someone's business or asked a question that wasn't any of your business, people always had the same response. It was kind of a thing that people would say. They didn't say none of your business. They would say, what are you, a cop or are you writing a book? <laughs> so so – and I mean, I, so it was a polite, it's kind of a semi-polite way of saying none of your business. Right. And I said, no, no. I said, I, I'm just curious. I said, because I went to school in Arkansas for a year and, and we we had to do our own shoots and pillowcases. We had, we had a washer and dryer laundromat. And I said, you rent those? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, why do you want to know? I said, I, I'm just curious. I said, I'm just always interested in what people do. I said, it just, I said, I saw economy linen on your truck. He said, well, he said, to tell you the truth, he said, I'm not even in this business. He said, my uncle owns this company. He says, I'm a hairdresser. I own five hair salons. Oh. He said, but I've had a heart attack and I can't put my hands above my shoulders. I can only keep them down. I can do this kind of work, but I can't keep them up all day working on women's hair. He says, so I put my, my uh, salons in the care of a manager and I went to work for my uncle who owns Economy Linen. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he said, well, so what do, you, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a student here. And at that time, Stacy, um, I was flying out of Detroit Metro Airport. I learned at Metro Airport, which was great. I, I didn't, you know, the, there's an old adage in flying that God takes care of young boys and uh, young men and fools learning how to fly. And I'd be number 15 to take off behind a 707, a Bach 111, DC-3, I mean DC-8 uh, 727, the, the three holders. And at that time, there was an a airplane climbing out of uh, departure, out of Metro. By the time you get over to Ypsilanti, where, where Eastern is, 
Uh, it's up about seven to 9,000 feet. And I, this, it was a beautiful fall day. And I pointed up to the sky. I said, see that airplane up there? It's a three-holer. It's a 727. I said, I'm going to fly those someday. And he said, really? I said, yeah, but right now I'm in school and I'm going to get a degree and I'm going to fly in the Marine Corps and then out of the Marine Corps, I'm going to fly for the airlines. That's my goal. That's my dream. And uh, he said, uh, well, you know it would be a good business for you besides the window clean business? I said, what? He said, the mat rental business. I said, the mat rental business? He said, yeah, when you walk in, you see those things that people wipe their feet on? I said, yeah, I know about that. But I said, I'm not – that wouldn't work for me because I, I wouldn't know where to buy the mats. And he pulled out a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen and he said, here, you, you buy them from Best Tex Cotton Products from a guy named Max <laughs> Ellenbogen. He gives me the name and the – not the phone number, but he gives me the name and the, of the company and a gentleman to talk to. And I said, well, even if I bought the mats, I said, I wouldn't know where to clean them. He said, oh, that's simple. He said, there's two places that clean mats. He said, Corian Carpet Service on Schaefer Avenue and Kenwood Carpet Service on Wyoming. And all you do is just contact them and they'll clean them for you. They, they do that for a lot of independents like that. So he gave me this slip of paper and it said, Best Tex Cotton Products, Max Ellenbogen. And it said, Corian Carpet Service, Schaefer Avenue. And it said, Kenwood Carpet Service, Wyoming Street or Wyoming Avenue. And again, I'd like to have that piece of paper back. Right. Yeah, another <laughs> so, million dollars. Yeah, right. He handed you, and a piece he did. Of paper. He handed he, the guy handed me millions of dollars. He he literally did. And um, but I, I like what Les Brown says. He said, you know, he said, I'd rather have you be prepared mm-hmm. with no opportunity than right. to have an opportunity and not be prepared. Right. And I really realized at that time my my mental state, my 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 desire, my dreams, God's direction in my life was all leading me to a point where I could learn these things to get prepared before I was when the opportunity showed itself. And it didn't take long for the opportunity to show itself. So I went back uh, home and I told Sharon about it. And I think I, I must have. I must have told you about it. And um, I got I was it just made sense to me. And uh, so I went down and met Max Allenbogen and um, at Best Texcott products. And um, he sold me a few mats and I went to one of my my customers, uh, Jimmy Gotsis, he used to own the Golden Lantern at Five Mile in Farmington right across from Bates Hamburgers. Mm-hmm. It's called Sam's Place today. It's still there. One of these typical uh, uh, restaurants back in the day, Clock, Palace, they used to call them exhibition cooking, like a Denny's, things like that. And um, so I went to Jimmy Gotsis, who was a Greek fellow that owned the place. And I said, Jimmy, you know, I'm cleaning your windows every week for 10 bucks. I said, but I see these, these mats are on the floor. And um, you, you rent those, right? And he said, yeah, I get them from my linen guy, American Linen. I said, well, listen, Jimmy. I said, you know, I'm working my way through college. I always use that as a pitch. You know, it was a nice way to get people to listen to you and, and appreciate what you're trying to accomplish. I said, Jimmy, you know, I'm working my way through college doing this window cleaning thing. And I said, if I got those mats and got the same mats for you, I said, would you rent them from me instead of your American linen guy? And he said, well, sure. He said, how much you want? I said, Jimmy, I don't even – what do you pay? I said, I don't even know. He said, well, I pay $4 for the big one and $2. I gave the guy $6 a week for those mats. Now, you're talking, ladies and gentlemen, back in 1970, 71, something like that. And um, so I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, I was cleaning those windows for $10 every Wednesday. Now, back in those days, Stacy, everybody – not everybody, but 44% of America uh, adults smoked. So they'd sit in these restaurants and they'd sit by the windows and the window seats were always taken first. And they'd sit there and they'd smoke and drink coffee and have their lunch or whatever. And so if I walked in a restaurant to clean the windows, you couldn't just skip a window. They'd all be full of a yellow film 
they weren't like today where you, you, there's, you can't believe how bad they were. And the water would literally turn like a tobacco brown color when I'd clean the windows. You start with a clean bucket of water and you clean the inside. You, you couldn't do the outside. You, matter of fact, sometimes you couldn't even clean all the inside windows. They'd be so full of nicotine stains in the water. So I'd clean the windows, but then I'd have to wait for booths to clear out. So a half-hour job could sometimes take me an hour because I had to wait for the people to leave. Well, I, I cleaned the windows. Let's say it took me 45 minutes, not even a half an hour, because ideally it hardly ever happened. It was a half an hour. And I was, then I would get $10. Well, then when I started doing his floor mats, I'd get $16. Well, then it occurred to me, I changed those floor mats in like five minutes mm-hmm. or less, and I made $6. But it took me 45 minutes because people would leave the booth to make $10. So it didn't take me, you know, I'm not, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but it didn't take me long <laughs> enough to figure out that, you know, $6 in five minutes is way more money than $10 in 45 minutes. Now, there's more to it than that because you had to have the, the processing and you'd, you'd spend time going to get them and things like that. So there was time spent. It wasn't just you made six, $6 in six minutes, but I could see the, the multiplication effect of the time. And so one day I met a, I, so I was in the mat business, but very, very, uh, light, uh, a very small scale, had a few customers. And one day I was, again, I met these guys at Kenwood Carpet Service and they agreed to clean these mats for me because I had no way of cleaning them. And um, so I went to uh, the, the back door of this place one day and there was a, a almost like cordwood, if you imagine whether you'd stack firewood up in four and then opposite way four, like in a stack of firewood, but these were mats rolled up and they were about 65 of these mats in a, in a pile, two or three piles by size. And I said to the gentleman at the door, his name was Bob Wesley. I said, Bob, I said, whose mats are those? He said, oh, those are Zelinsky's. I said, who? He says, Eddie Zelinsky. I said, who's Eddie Zelinsky? He says, he owns that company. Hold tight. I said, hold what? He said, hold tight. I said, hold tight. He said, yeah. He says, hold tight. Hold tight rug. I said, how many? I was coming there once a week, by the way, with about twelve mats, and uh, I said, "How often does he come in and bring those mats in?" He said, well, four days a week. He works uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday." I said, "And he brings that many mats in every day?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "I got to meet this guy." So he said, "Well, you can set your watch by him." He says he comes in every morning at five o'clock, and he comes in every afternoon with the, to load his truck, and he comes in every afternoon at two o'clock when he's done, and then he loads his truck the next day. So I said, well, I'm not going to come at 5 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> but I will meet him at 2. So I made, my, made a point to meet Eddie, and um, he was very kind to me. And again, again, I, uh, it was an opportunity, just being prepared for an opportunity. What I didn't know about Eddie, he, he was very, very, very open and honest and helpful, and he wanted to help me, immediately mm-hmm. wanted to help me. And what I didn't know about Eddie was he, he already knew a little bit about me with coming in a little bit with a few mats I had, but he saw in me his retirement ticket because he had no children. It was just him and his wife, Ethel. They'd been married. He was in his 60s at the time, and uh, which seemed ancient to me. You got to remember <laughs> I was 20, uh, 21, something like that. And um, I thought, you know, he had one foot in the grave and the other one on the banana peel, you know, <laughs> because, you know, 60-year-old to a 20-year-old, you'd think, they, how can this guy even get up in the morning and roll up a mat, let alone do 50 or 60 in a day. 
But anyway, I was very impressed with the number of mats. I, I was, my mind was like I was doing the math. So it turned out that um, what, what I didn't realize about Eddie was he saw in me his retirement ticket, and I saw in Eddie uh, an, an ability, a mentor, someone to learn from. So it wasn't long that he came to me and said, you know, I'd like to sell you my company. Would you be interested in buying it? And I said, Eddie, I'd love to buy your company, but I don't have any money. And he said, well, we can work out some terms, and we did, and they're not important to this story, but it was very affordable. And um, we, I bought Eddie out in 1971 or 72. I don't. John, your brother has the documentation in our office. Oh, he great. found it. Uh, the actual attorney's uh, draw. It was a two-page document that the attorney drew up. Maybe I'll find your magazines, <laughs> <laughs> or at least, or at least a link to them. Anyway, uh, so that that changed our life. I was doing about twenty-four thousand dollars a year in in window cleaning back in those days which doesn't sound like a lot today, but it was. In the, in the 70s, the average person, I think, made about $7,500 a year in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And when I bought Eddie out, or I should say when we did, mom, because mom was right there beside me. You kids, uh, John was born, but your your sister Lori was not born yet, neither were you. And a mom would be, uh, she would literally type out our invoices for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, do, the, do the paperwork, she'd do the banking, uh, as I recall, and a lot of just, a lot of, a lot of paperwork that we needed to have done. It wasn't that big, but she, she was very helpful to me. And uh, when I bought Eddie out or when we bought Eddie out, uh, we doubled our income. We went from mm-hmm. being a – I'm sorry. I have that wrong. I was doing $50,000 a year. I said $24,000 a year. I was okay. doing $24,000 a year in window cleaning and $24,000 a year in mat rental. Okay. So you were still doing the window cleaning. Yes, I was. Okay. Then I, when I bought Eddie out, I saw immediately I had to get out of that window cleaning business because mm-hmm. I could see there was – I actually literally doubled our income. We went from $50,000 a year to $100,000 a year because that's, that's what Eddie was doing. And that was in the 70s. And I, I never looked back, and we were really blessed. Mm-hmm. We really were blessed. Yeah. That's how it started, and that's how it, and it grew from there. So with Hold Tight, um, he was obviously still using Kenwood to Correct. clean yeah. the mats. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you start cleaning and storing your own mats? Because weren't you guys keeping all of your inventory, the clean inventory, on your front porch. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, what happened was that's uh, we're gonna go go back a little bit, a few years when I got when I got into the mat rental business and I told mom about it. We were all excited. We took a loan out from uh, the Telephone Employees Credit Union. That's where mom worked. We didn't have any children at the time. Your brother wasn't born yet, and we took a loan out from the Telephone Employees Credit Union for I'm gonna say two thousand dollars or maybe less. And I convinced mom that we had to we had to get into this business and I had to buy some mats. Well. I got on the phone with a guy down in Atlanta from a company called W. Linton Howard. And uh, the guy saw a live one or, or heard a live one on the other end of the phone. And he sold me mats galore. This guy sold me <laughs> – he sold me mats in every color and every size. And I uh, – when you order stuff over the phone, you don't realize how big the order is. You're just thinking about the money you're spending but not thinking about the volume of what are we going to do with all this stuff. Well, one day uh, we were sitting there at home in, in the little house on Indian in, in Redford Township, and a big semi truck pulled up to the, <laughs> to the front door. And the guy knocked on the door and he said to him, "Is this ready?" I used to call it Ready Rug. I thought I was being okay. real clever. I didn't like Hold Tight. Well, I didn't even know Hold Tight then, actually, right? Because it was just you. It was just me with the yeah. window cleaning, and I called it Ready Rug. R E D D I. I thought that was very clever. And uh, so um, we had Ready Rug, and the guy said, "Is this Ready Rug?" And I said, "Yeah, that's it." And he said. Um, I've got some rugs for you, some carpets. And I said, oh, great. And I said, we opened up the back of the semi and the thing was just full of mats, boxes. And uh, I didn't even have a garage. We just had a front porch that was little like a Florida sunroom 
Well, anyway, that's not even fair to call it that. It was just a, a long porch with double-hung windows on it. And uh, he said, I can't drop these off. Where's your loading dock? This is supposed to be a commercial. I'm only supposed to pull, pull it to commercial spots. And I said, he said, well, you'll have to get this re-delivered to someplace. Like you'll have to come down to the airport and pick them up down there. And I, so I convinced, again, when you have to make something happen, mm-hmm. you, you'll be so resourceful because you can't afford it. You don't have the money, you don't, but you do have the means to think through your problems. And so I convinced the guy with sales techniques that I didn't even know I possessed at the time, but I did possess them. And I convinced the guy to help me unload the truck and put – all the mats in our driveway and not take them back to the depot where I'd have to go back to the airport and make several trips with my station wagon to go back or rent a truck, which I didn't want to do. And so the gentleman helped me unload. I think he would, he agreed to take them to the back of the truck. And so we took them to the back of the truck. He took them to the back of the truck and I unloaded them from there and put them in the driveway. That's all I did. Well, thankfully, it wasn't a, a, a terrible day. And so then I stacked all I could in the front porch of the uh, – of the, our little house there on Indian. The house was – people have garages bigger than our house. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. It's probably 600 square feet. And um, we loaded all – mom and I loaded them all up in the in the porch. And we literally had to create a, just a little aisleway. They were from floor to ceiling in this porch. This porch was only – when I say a porch, it was only 8 feet wide and maybe 20 feet long. So we had to actually have mats from floor to ceiling in these boxes and then had a little pathway that we could – like an L-shaped pathway that we could walk to our front door with. And then I still had mats left in the driveway. So unfortunately – I mean fortunately for me, my mother lived in uh, across the street uh, about uh, maybe oh, less than a quarter mile away. And so she agreed to let me – she had a nice house, but she didn't have a garage. And so uh, she let me put the mats in her basement, the, the extra mats. And those mats sat in that basement for years. <laughs> that's, that's that's how many mats I bought. And then when I got with Eddie and and grew, uh, then I, had, I was able to take those out of there and use those too. But I, I I overbought. I really you know it was my my financial eyes were way bigger than my wallet. Right. But I like what you said about how you know when you don't have anything, but you have to make it work. That your mind, it's sort of like what Robert Kiyosaki talks about in Rich Dad Poor Dad, right, where right. your mind will show you opportunities mm-hmm. that when you weren't lacking something, the opportunities were always there. The solutions to the problems were always there, but you didn't know that you needed them because you weren't in lack. You weren't in a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. And that the minute that you become uncomfortable and things start to seem scarce, your mind will open up and find the solutions because it's right. a survival right. technique, which I think a lot of people don't realize um, that, that that's like the magic of the human spirit or and it, the power it, of the mind. You're, you're right, and it is the magic. It really, it truly, is a magic to it. Or a, a, I want to use the word mystical thing about it, but there's a power there. That, mm-hmm. That's what I would say. The magic is the power that God has given us all as, as, as human beings to solve problems mm-hmm. and to learn how to um, facilitate, to go and grow and achieve and believe. And um, the the interesting thing there too is that how that when you mentioned how that. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki talked about that with Rich Dad Poor Dad. I'd like to tell the audience if 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 there's anything that you can take away from today's podcast would be this: whatever it is that's in your obst in your way of your success, there's answers to that. I remember Kimmons Wilson. He started the Holiday Ends of America, and he said this: he said money is the most unimportant thing in the world, hmm. as long as you have enough money to meet your basic needs. 
if $25,000 a year is what – he said this back in the 70s. He said if $25,000 a year is enough to meet your basic needs, then $25,000 is very, very important. Above that, money's just a way of keeping score. And so when you, when you, want, to, when you want to achieve something, you have to realize if you, when you get committed to the idea, the answers come. It's not the answers come first, then you get committed to the idea. Like Zig Ziglar said, you don't, the student does say, doesn't say to the, to the teacher, you give me an A and then I'll study. Right. You can't go to the stove and say, give me some heat, then I'll put some wood in. It doesn't work that way. And so, if, again, the, the, the thing I would like to add, anybody take away from today's podcast would be this. Get whatever dream you have, get committed to it. And then the answers will show up. Mm-hmm. They, they'll, 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 it won't be easy. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it's going to be worth it. Right. 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 And it's sort of to go full circle the way that we started when we're talking about how your mind will show you the opportunity and it will solve the problem. You know, you've got this gentleman who's giving away his seat on an airplane, not thinking (laughs) about what's going to happen after that necessarily. Or maybe he intended that as soon as he had the idea. He could have. But the idea still was there. It wasn't that there was a problem and then a wall was built up and – and there was no way to go forward. It's really a matter of training your mind once you sort of understand the concept to start working in this fashion so that everything is an open door, everything is a window, everything is a crack that you can get through um, because you've trained your mind to see the opportunities instead of the problem. Yeah. You know, I, when you talk about that, I, I listened to a tape interview by that Mark Cuban uh, didn't he use to own CompuWare? What did he use to own? Some, some computer company. I can't remember what it was. Oh, well, he sold whatever business he had. He sold it to Yahoo News and he was streaming. They were streaming on the Internet sports because mm-hmm. they couldn't listen to the Indiana uh, sports <laughs> games where they were living. And they wanted to be able to hear this. And I forget the name of what the company was now, but they ended up selling that streaming service to Yahoo for just tons, yeah. and tons, it, and tons it, of money. But before he did that, he sold a company for not a lot of money, but it was a lot of money to him, as I remember the story. At least that's the way I remember this part of the story. And what was interesting, the, the one takeaway I got from that whole interview that I heard from him was this. When he got a little bit of money, he said one of the smartest things he did was he bought, an, un, he bought two tickets. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Two tickets that were unlimited air travel anywhere in the world for 12 months. Mm-hmm. I think they were at like $20,000 or $12,000. And he said, this is the best money I ever spent. He said, because my buddy and I traveled the world. He said, we met so many people. We had so many life experiences. And it only cost me $12,000. Right. I, I forget the number. It's, it was a lot of money mm-hmm. at the time. But at the same time, he really um, – he, he just was all in. And, right. and, and uh, it was really such a cool story. And that's – Kind of like a theme when you look at these people like Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban and, and so many other people, um, Damon John from FUBU, mm-hmm. when they, they started out with very little. And if you listen to Mark's Cuban story, he had a job working at a computer store right. and he got fired from that because he wanted to close a sale and he left the store without permission to go to the customer. That's to right. Close I forgot sale. that story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because he was focused on what really mattered, which was closing close the sale, the sale he right. solved the problem by having somebody, um, you know, cover a shift or whatever, right. but got fired for it anyway. And to, uh, to understand like what is the priority and what is the opportunity and what is important. And, and they all have these stories. So if you think about Barbara Corcoran, the very first time that she was able to rent an apartment, she got her first listing. Just cool, cool story. Um, 
if you ever listen to How I Built This, that's one of my favorite interviews with her. And she talks about how she had grown up so poor and she dressed like a poor kid. But when she got this sale and closed it, the very first thing she did was go to Saks and she bought hmm. this very, very fancy coat. And she spent almost all of her money on it. But yeah. she said that it was the best thing that she ever did for herself because – it gave her power and it gave her confidence and it helped her look like she belonged in right. the part. And right. then every time after that, that she would have some success, she'd go out and she'd take that money and she would hire two new salespeople. Mm-hmm. And it was this perpetual uh, reinvestment mm-hmm. in what she was doing and reinvestment in the dream. And if you study these people, that's really the thing that they all have in common is that there's this deep commitment to what they're doing. And there's a reinvestment in that commitment and there's also that idea that there's there's not really a problem. There's obstacles and challenges but there's solutions to it and that's what seems like is is the most important theme which right. goes back to the, the idea of positive mindset. Right. Which is why I say I never had a bad day in my life. Right. <laughs> How much time do we have? Uh, we've got about t- 12 minutes. Okay. What I'd like to do is I'm going to turn the tables on you because you told me a really – by the way uh, – listeners out there, whoever you might be, the one or two people that might be listening. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the the uh, what's so gratifying to me at my stage of my life now is I'm 72 years of age and I've, I've achieved a lot and it's not just about money. I've had all these great life experiences. I've landed on an aircraft carrier. I've owned five airplanes. I've had these – I have had I have a great family, a wonderful wife of 52 years, three beautiful children, smart, all solid citizens as they say. And that's their mom's – to their, mom's, their mother's credit, six grandchildren. And so Stacy is uh, my youngest. She's the baby and she um, has her own business. And I don't want to get into the particulars uh, only that she wants to because – this is public knowledge. I mean, it's a public forum. But I, but it's really gratifying to me to see the seminars that I taught these kids, Sharon too, that we taught the children growing up. And then you see them as adults, and they take what you taught them, and they run with it, and they and they they do their, they have their own monopoly set. I call it owning your own monopoly set. And uh, Stacy has her own monopoly set, and she had a real. Interesting week this week, and I was so proud of her when she told me what happened to her this week. So I'd like her to kind of go into that story without the particulars that you you have to be sensitive about personalities and sure. and and names. Go ahead. So um, sales is not my you know it's not my natural state. Like my dad is a, a natural born salesman, and I'm more of a a thinking towards operations and logistics and kind of I like to solve problems. I like to build and create things. But selling them is not necessarily uh, the thing that I most love to do. But again, uh, you're in a position with your business or in your life that you're desperate to do it because there's nobody else to do it and you have to figure out a way to do it. And I'm lucky because I, I had a distributor and I have one really, really fantastic salesperson uh, her name's Heather from Cherry Capital Foods, and she does a great job. She's she's more than I could ask for in a salesperson. Uh, but you know, part of how that works is is relationships on her side and relationships on my side. And what was interesting about this week was I had this particular account that I have been calling on and getting nowhere with for over a year, and. 
really to the point where it wasn't discouraging. It was just like, wow, I'm really not getting anywhere with this and I maybe I'm I'm not very good at what I'm doing or this is really not my natural state. But Heather doesn't have the relationship there and I ended up being able to be in contact with this person through someone that they were very close to and that person – I had a, an appointment with them, a sales appointment. That was on Tuesday, right? Well, this is about a year ago, this this contact. And so he said, well, why don't you call her? I I know her and tell her that that I said to call. And so I called her again and I dropped his name and it didn't go anywhere. And I thought, well, this is great. This is not going anywhere. But I kept at it because it was something I really, really wanted. It was something that I felt was important and there were reasons for that. And finally, after trying all this, I called and I left a message and – she called me back and I couldn't believe it. And so I was really excited. And I don't often um, spend a lot of time talking about myself personally or my business on social media. If I like to talk about dogs. If you follow my social media, it's all dogs all the time and then maybe some area politics because um, I'm involved in our, our town politics. But this one day I decided that I was going to post something about my business and and – then a couple of weeks later, I decided I was going to post that I had been working on this and that I finally got the appointment. And even though sales wasn't in like my natural state, um, I was still going to do it because I do believe that in life, your very survival depends on your willingness to do things that you're bad at, willingness to do things that you don't want to do, willingness to do things that are probably really scary, that terrify you. And you have to keep going. You have to keep doing this because – no one else is going to do them. So for all you folks listening out there, this is why I call Stacy Atsa, A-T-T-S-A. Atsa, my girl. <laughs> <laughs> so knowing this is true, you know, it's just this – you keep going. You keep doing it. And so I, I made this post and just talking about how I, I at one point had probably been afraid of doing this. But after keeping it up, I wasn't afraid of it anymore. And now I had finally, after all this time, landed this appointment. And then everybody was so nice. They were so encouraging. Oh, you're going to do great. It's awesome. You you were going to just kill it. There's no way that they could say no to you after this appointment. And I go on the appointment. I have this high expectation. I have this high level of confidence that it's going to go well because I'm prepared. And this and was I'm, this, this last this week. This was this week. Yeah, yeah right. Tuesday. And I get to the appointment. It's a total disaster. <laughs> It was a mess. At one point, I was sitting on the floor, which I haven't even told you yet no, that, no, that happened. But this. the way that the thing was configured, and we were so far apart, there was this big table. If I sat in the chair across from her, I'd be yelling at her, and she couldn't <laughs> see my papers. But if I walked over to show it to her, then I was standing over because she was sitting <laughs> down. So then I would go back to my seat, and then that was still wrong. So then I finally decided to get on the floor to show her what all the stuff was. Anyway, it was a disaster. It was just in the highest order. A total mess. The lady, it was, it just could not have gone any worse. And I got in the car and I thought, well, I, I've got to tell everybody that this was such a flop. Like, I can't, I can't. Because you got these followers. Something. Yeah, I can't post saying, way, something way and act like my life is perfect. It's right. not. Nobody's life is perfect. So I posted. It was a total mess. Like, I was still laughing about it. And, and the key was that I was laughing about it. Because, oh, by the way, tell them about Kevin, though, your boyfriend. 
Oh, when, that he didn't believe me yeah, that I you, thought it was funny? Yeah, yeah you, you were okay with it. And so yeah, forth. so I got in the car and I was laughing about it because it was a legitimate disaster. It was just like it could not have gone any worse. It was comical. And I was laughing and, and maybe before I would have – I'm sure before I would have gone to the car and I would have been embarrassed or I would have been – uh, dejected. But I just thought it was so funny that this was such a mess. And I believe that it's going to be okay. So it doesn't matter if it's a fail because in my life experience, there have been so many things that have gone so much worse than that, that yeah, this, is, this is yeah. not a big deal. And I like how Richard Branson talked about when he had this cola company, basically Coke shut him down. And he said, after I lose, I never think about it again. Mm-hmm. I just I, – I lost. I'm moving on. There's no yeah. reason to dwell on it. Right. And yeah. so I just got in the car and I thought, well, that was a mess. I'm not going <laughs> to worry about that. And I really was able to just kind of for that time just let it go. So I get on my phone. And I post – you know, it was a – guys, it was a disaster. I'm not going to get on here and act like I'm some kind of triumphant, you know, sales machine. It was total cluster. And everybody, again, was like really, really positive and really supportive. And I went home and I told Kevin and he was like, oh, I didn't really see it going like that. And I was like, neither did I. And obviously like four days later, I'm still laughing about this. So the next morning, my brother sends me a text at like 7 o'clock and it's a text that he got from one of our mutual friends at the gym, Lionheart Fitness in South Lion. And this guy says to my brother, hey, I got to talk to your sister because – My wife is a food broker, so I have a food business. So my wife is a food broker, and she wants to talk to your sister about these sales appointments that happened. And so my brother put us in touch, and I called him, and I said, Brian, thanks for the text. And I was laughing because I knew I was going to have to retell this ridiculous story. And he said, you know, I saw your post a couple weeks ago talking about your business, and that's when I realized you had a food business. And I said to my wife, Karen – hey, you've got to meet this girl. You know, you're a food broker. She's got a food business. You've got to meet. And then all this time later, you post that you've worked hard on this sales appointment and you were going to get this appointment. It was going to go well probably. And I was excited for you. So I told Karen. And then you posted that it was a total disaster. (laughs) And then we felt really bad for you. So I called Karen. I said, you've got to see this. This is a mess. I felt so bad that she was prepared and excited. And the lady, like, sounds like maybe she ate her alive. And it was just a total flop. And Karen said, oh, I know that woman. And I know that she can be really hard to sell to. And I've got to call her and tell her that it's not her. She didn't do anything wrong. And she shouldn't give up and she should keep going. And one of the things that was so incredible about that to me was that there's never been a time in my life when I regretted not being sincere and Mm. not being genuine and not putting on some kind of show like it's better over here than it really is, right? Like I've never regretted being honest with people. I've never been sorry that I told the truth. And and more than that, I've been amazed at the willingness and the generosity and the kindness of other people that they almost can't stop themselves from being helpful to you because they so appreciate that you were honest. And that that was one of the biggest takeaways from this experience this week was that just by being honest and just by not um, 
being discouraged by the experience, it really um, opened a door to something that I I really wasn't even intending to walk through. I was ready just to – not to give up but just to say, OK, I've got to move change on. my right. priorities and move on to something else. And now it's caused me to be in a position to to meet a new friend and to meet a new colleague in my industry. And, and that's why it's important, I think, to not be – um, hurt or disappointed when things don't go wrong. There's no bad days. There's bad attitudes. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There's no bad experience. And that's the truth that I've shared with my family and friends and, and a lot of people. And that is that you're 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 only one person away from God's favor in your life. Uh, God usually works through people. He does have angels that I believe that work on our behalf. But at the same time, mostly He works through people. Mm-hmm. And you're only one person away. God knows the people you need in your life that day, that time, that hour, that minute. To, to uh, promote you or keep you safe. It's not always yes. The answers to our prayers is not always yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. But uh, it's really really neat to, to know that you're only one person away from God's favor in your life. And that, that person may be Karen. Mm-hmm. Did you say her name was Karen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter. But just to know that you, you know, success is right around the corner for all of us, just mm-hmm. waiting and working. And that you have to believe and that you have to, to look for it. You right. know, it's it's what we've been talking about all hour is that your mind just has to be made aware of the opportunities and to have this commitment to keep going. So okay. one person away is – that could be a whole show. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody's got a, a, well, some stories if you were to think back and about how one person can make a big difference. And I'm sure everybody can relate to that as they listen to us. Well, thanks for listening this week. Again, this is Doc Sloan with Stacy. Never had a bad day in my life. See you next week. Bye.